0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: podcast. We wrap up our five-part series on the opioid crisis here in Hamilton. Uh, It has been a very instructive week uh, during the first four segments as uh, we brought in experts, uh, people that are working on the front lines and uh, dealing with this. And we're talking about fentanyl, car fentanyl, the impact that it has on you and uh, those that are affected by it. It's not just obviously the users, it's family, it's friends, it's loved ones who are impacted by this as well. And you're going to hear that story in just a couple of seconds. We are also uh, going to talk with uh, Russ Crocker, who is the Deputy Chief of Hamilton Paramedic Service. Hey, boy, you're talking about people that are on the front lines in uh, in this opioid crisis. And uh, we'll talk with Russ about some of the stories and some of the things that has happened in his long career uh, as a paramedic. To begin with, though, I want to introduce you to Lynn. Uh, Lynn is a mom uh, whose son is using opiates. This has been happening for a long, long time now. and. Uh, we wanted to have her in here to tell her story. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming in here. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, oh. th- this is, I, I, you sent us a note earlier, and I read this earlier this morning, and I, I thought, my God, the, the stuff that, that, that you've talked about. And I know this is really just scratching the surface. So mm-hmm. go, go back and, and tell us how this whole thing started and, and the impact that this has had.
2: Well, this started for us 14 years ago and what happened was uh, when... How uh, old uh, was your son then? He he was in grade 9. Okay. And in grade 9, he was uh, actually assessed with ADHD. So we got him on the proper medication and worked with him there, and then by the age of 16, we had a very tragic family event uh, that happened, and then um, we didn't really know that and didn't realize that it affected him that much. And then by the time he was graduating, uh, we got a call from his teacher to say that uh, he was in major crisis and he was very depressed. So we moved along with that. Did that surprise you when you heard that? Yeah, very surprised. So he masked that. He wasn't showing that at all. Exactly, exactly. And we were a busy family, working, whatever, and, you know, we had a normal life. Like, we were a normal family, very happy, very successful. So How were his marks? His marks started to decline once it was uh, uh, noted there. But then, um, so at the age of 18, actually, when he was 18, I thought to myself, oh, I have this licked. You know, our son is really kind of good, but, you know, he's not into drugs and so on and so forth. But I was so wrong. And uh, what happened was when he got out of high school, to mask the pain, he then went to the streets for drugs. And at that time, his choice was cocaine and ecstasy. And it Were, was were there terrible. any what they call gateway drugs? Was he doing something Absolutely. else? Absolutely, it started with marijuana. Yeah, and what happened was with marijuana, then they want to increase the THC to get a more higher kick, and so on and so forth, and and then they progress. And next thing was cocaine, and then after that was ecstasy. So um, we had so many paramedics and police at our door. We had, you know, street people knocking at our door it was just a horrible mess and
1: so did you notice about the marijuana usage at first
2: i did you know um what happened was because the smell was so distinct sure. coming into our home sure and i would ask but of course you know being on drugs whatever you lie and i wasn't no, but he's, now food. he's still
1: taking meds for his adhd no oh he wasn't no did you know that he'd stopped no, that,
2: no we had no idea we had no idea so, well, that's when, only going to make the situation worse. Absolutely. Absolutely, Bill. Yeah, for sure. So, then what happened was um at 18 when he started into these drugs, we really lost control. Um at the same time, you know, 18, you have really no parental rights as you would if someone was uh, the child was 13. As much as you want to be there. I mean, they're an adult then. And um so we went through some horrific, horrific. You um, mentioned police coming to the door. What was going police. on there? What happened was he had an overdose of ecstasy, and he had to be in a dark room for a week. And um, and then when he first came home, he couldn't walk. So I called the EMS. And then not knowing that the EMS would be contacting the police because I did say it was drug probably related, but I didn't know. Like parents just don't know what they're doing out there, right? So. Um, did, did he want you to call the police? Uh, he paramedics. Yeah. Paramedics, absolutely, because he needed help, and they came into our bathroom, and I mean that kid was a mess. He, he was a mess, just basically on the shadow of death, I would say. That one of the
1: stories we've heard, uh, Lynn, that, that I'm sure you saw examples of this, too, with your son's use or abuse, or more pr- appropriately, I guess, is they're afraid to call authorities because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to be arrested. They don't want to be investigated.
2: Oh, absolutely. And same with a parent. I'm a parent. And I'm me, too. Because you don't know how far it's gone out there with him. Because they're not honest with you. They're not honest with you. They manipulate you. Um, You're scared of your child going to jail. I mean... I was never in trouble with the law. My husband were both great people, good, abiding Canadian citizen, you know, and got good jobs. And we never, ever had to run in with the law. Now, so, you know,
1: your son's in a, in a dire circumstance. He's, he's in the bathroom. You you call 911. You get this emergency assistance. Yeah. Uh, how did you feel when you saw a police cruiser roll up to the front door?
2: No no problem.
1: You didn't bother. that didn't bother you at all. No, it didn't bother me at I all. Because I know some some families I've talked to when I had situations like this that there's this stigma, like what are the neighbors gonna think? You know, here's a cop car
2: here. I didn't really care, Bill, at that time, because I was in desperate need. I was also fed up here with um all the things that's associated with someone being on drugs and addicted that um I just knew he was going to a safe place. And basically if the police were there and they were gonna come in like i mean I, my house was open to them so it's like if you want and actually i said to the one officer if you want to go search his room go sutra's room because we need to get a hold of this we can got to get a handle on did this." did they uh, no no they
1: didn't no was there evidence looking back on this uh, and here's the o- the overdose and i know this is not the end of the story but in that particular incident yeah in hindsight do you look back and say i, I should have seen this coming or was, was there no evidence at
2: all, as far as you could see? No evidence. Uh, well, there was. Aside the from smell a pot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it's a slow-moving thing. It just wasn't all of a sudden there in your face one day. It would, like, took a year or so because they actually take it slow as well. You know, they try pot and next thing you know, it's, you know, that's not good enough. And then they're going on doing their jobs. And, you know, it just doesn't happen overnight that they just go into all this because they got to get, they got to know the names of the people to trust on the streets, believe it or not. And uh, so it does take a while. But looking back, uh, you know, I, I had no idea that the marijuana use would lead us to this where we are today. And we didn't know that he had an addictive personality. That's another thing. That's a very key issue.
1: Yeah, they've, we've heard that from uh, some of the doctors that have been on our panels that uh, that you can't say for sure with with certain individuals, but there can be a propensity for this sort of thing as well. What was he doing with his life at this time? You, was he still in school? Was he trying to work?
2: What was Well, he happening? was graduating, and uh-huh. he graduated, and he was working at this time. OK. So, did you
1: see a, a change in the in the people that he was hanging out with, different group of of friends,
2: associates? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All the good friends that we enjoyed prior to this happening. Um, you know, all the kids that he had around the house, absolutely they were gone. Now he had new friends coming in, but he wouldn't share where he was going, he wouldn't share the the names of the uh people. So you know, he's just started to get a little bit more um, hidden, like he would hide covert, the stuff was, secretive yeah, about what yes, he was doing. Yes, secretive. Yes.
1: So, just a uh, car would roll up, and he'd run out and say, "I'll see you later." He didn't. Was he spending
2: much time at home? No, no, he wasn't spending much time at all. And and. Rightfully so, because I'm a woman that's got a good Columbo hat on. So, and I got good <laughs> intuition. So he just knew that mom was going to catch on faster than dad, you know? So, what happened after this incident? He- so, what happened was in 2007, August, uh, he got arrested. And I was just thanking my lucky stars at that point for $10 for stealing. Stealing ten dollars. Had he s- had he stolen before? Oh yeah. Oh from, oh yeah. F- from the house? Oh, from the house. Yes, absolutely. It it was horrendous. But at that point, it was like good. He's in jail, and it was always one of the things at home. You're in jail. I'll leave. You, it's up to you. Like you know, was, you, you're there. You're we're on gonna your own. going to keep you there. You're on your own, right? That was a very strong rule. Um. So I did. I left him there, and I he would call. From the jail phone number, uh the phone, and I just wouldn't answer the phone. I was like, "You're there, you're there, right so how um, long how long did that go on? That went on for two weeks, and then a lawyer called me from jail and said, "He doesn't belong here. Can we have your help?" And I said, "You can have my help if I write my own bail hearing, and they went, "What bail hearing, absolutely." That kid doesn't is not going to go back on the streets. He's going right to treatment. So, so,
1: so you say, fine, I'll do this
2: mm-hmm. on the proviso
1: that he has to get help. Yep. Yep. Not just promise to, but he has to go right from there to that other facility. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. It was quarterly. Did you know
1: who to turn to to get that help?
2: I did because remember, Bill. Like this is two thousand seven, mm-hmm. right? And we had, um, so we had what a good six years before us. Um, and we knew all this stuff. And he'd been into rehabs before for a short period of time, uh, you know. So we knew the a lot of the ropes, okay. a lot of the ropes. And um, it was always in the back of my mind that if that was going to happen, he's going to be in jail. That's the next step. So we did. Um, and then the judge granted it to us, and he went for treatment for a year. And um, he came out, and he was fine. He, did he go he, willingly? Oh, he had to. It was was either that or stay in jail. Exactly. Court ordered. So um, he had to go. And uh, so, anyway. Did you visit
1: him while he was up there for a year? Is the facility in town or other In London. We
2: couldn't. We couldn't visit him um, on a regular basis. There were scheduled visits. So, for the first three months, we couldn't see him and then it was monthly, and that started to increase after that until he graduated in a year.
1: But you talked to the people that were running the program.
2: No, they wouldn't talk to us. Really? They would not talk to us. And that was one one downfall of the facility because it takes a family. You know, he's got his issues, but maybe there's something that, Maybe I triggered something in our son. Maybe my husband. Maybe a family issue. You don't know. It's like because between t- the way what I know today, there's a lot of correlation between mental health and drugs. And uh, but no, they wouldn't have nothing to do with it.
1: Did you and your husband feel guilty? Like you caused this? That's our
2: son. Oh, absolutely. Maybe. Huge guilt, Bill. Huge. We wanted to know what we did wrong. Where did we go wrong? And. Even today, when you say that, I wall up in tears because um, as a parent, you do. Where did I go wrong? You know, both my husband and I have never, ever, ever been on drugs.
1: But you mentioned right at the and beginning of our conversation that when he turned 18, there's, there's that parental thing, ah, we got through the rough years. Yeah. And you thought you had. Yeah. Because, because we care about our kids. Yeah. And you want what's best for them and for him in this particular situation. Yeah. And you figure we've navigated through all this stuff. Absolutely. But you didn't know. I had no idea. Had what no what idea. did that do? What did that do to you and your husband?
2: It was a challenge. You're you're living it.
1: This is this is not a, a, a TV movie that, you know, you can turn it off or it's over in an hour. You're living it every day.
2: Every day. Every day. Um it really put a strain on our marriage. Um but you know what one thing that both my husband and I are um true Uh, about, and that's we're dedicated to each other. Um, There is many issues, there's many fights. And the thing is, is that I knew that I also had to get counseling for us as well. Because, you know, anyone that's on drugs, which you know today, you have to get counseling for yourself, uh, get better so that you can help them. It's just like we're a caretaker, right? So if we fall apart, then it doesn't help the situation. How did you deal with the stress? I mean, your son
1: obviously went down this road. This is this has got to be tough to get out of bed every morning, Terrible. wondering what the day's
2: going to bring. Terrible. I, I mean, I listed with you to uh, sent you this today. What we live with every single day as you get out of bed, and um, we did have, you know, um, it. You know, well, actually, my healthcare team that I have surrounding me now uh, um, is—they say you're just so resilient, resilient, right? I don't—I didn't ever understand that, but um, you know, you need. You know, anyone that's going through this, and I'm just representing many, or I'm just re- representing like many, many, many families out there that are going through the same thing. I know they're hurting, I know they're struggling, and I know that they are embarrassed, and I know that they're full of shame and guilt. Um, but you just got to keep moving on and find the support around you to get healthy, to bring it together, because you got to caretake that person.
1: Uh, We have to do a break? Okay, I think we do. We'll come back in just a couple of seconds as we continue with Lynn um, and uh, her story about her son.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: The opioid crisis here in Hamilton. This is the uh, last in our five-part series, and uh, we're talking with Lynn, uh, not her real name, by the way, uh, because we want to protect uh, some sense of anonymity here uh, for your sake and uh, for your son's sake as well. Uh, we have to break in a couple of seconds. I'm going to bring Russ Crocker into the conversation, too, for Hamilton Paramedic Services and, and talk about that element of it. But uh, there's so much more of your story to, to talk about as well, and I'm glad uh, that you've got some time for us today. You mentioned that he, he went away for a year, your son. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are just joining us, uh, son has been dealing with addiction and uh, a, a, abuse of, of narcotics for some time. Uh, was he clean when he got back? Yes. How, yeah. was, how did he act? How was oh,
2: he from- totally different. We had our son back. And uh, a lot more beefier, happier. He was his jolly self. Uh, and, you know, he had gained a lot more weight. So very positive about life and on his new road to um, life. Was yeah. he resentful that you, that you sent him away? Yeah, he was. Yes, yes, he was. But at the same time, he knew he had to go away. But when he came back, we had that open conversation. Um, and uh, he was grateful, very grateful.
1: Did you feel guilty? You and your husband feel guilty that you had to send him away? No.
2: We were so exhausted, Bill. Mm-hmm. We were tired. We were fed up, and we knew it was a safe place. He just couldn't be back on those streets again because he was certainly reused. And what happens is when they go back to drugs like that and they haven't had some work and therapy, whatever, they go back to basically where they left off, which is a higher risk of overdosing and potentially
1: dying well yeah if you if he's been there for a year you you on the working assumption that he's clean i mean there's no way he probably would have had access to anything while he was there oh no 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 so you figure okay he's probably he's done a cleanse he's he's gone through the psychological uh work that needs to be done here and uh we it's a new beginning it's a clean slate absolutely Yep. Well, uh, there are some twists and turns yet to come in the story, too. We're going to do a short time out here for a news update. Uh, Lynn will stay with us, and I'm going to bring Russ Crocker in from Hamilton Paramedics as we continue our series on the opioid crisis here in Hamilton. You're listening to The Bill
0: Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: The opioid crisis, uh, this. Uh, last uh, in our series, our five-part series. And uh, our uh, our guest, uh, who we are calling Lynn, uh, is telling her story about uh, living with addiction with uh, her son for many, many years uh, and an ongoing situation as well. Thanks for sticking around. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And joining in the conversation is uh, is Russ Crocker. Russ is the uh, Deputy Chief Hamilton Paramedic Service. Russ, thanks for coming in today. Very thanks for having us. Uh, you've been sitting here listening to a lot of what we've been talking about with Lynn over the last little while. Uh, you and, and, and your f- folks in the paramedics, you get thrown into the breach on this. I mean, you're, you're the one who has to deal with this and the family situations and when you get these 911 calls. Uh, you've got some, st- some stats. I want to talk about those in just a couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. But from a personal standpoint, Russ, uh, how do you deal with something like this? I mean, I know I mentioned this when I have paramedics on the program, and we've done that from time to time with Mario Pastoraro and others. Uh, you don't know what you're going to see when you walk through the door. At any given call, do you?
0: No, no, exactly. And and, and just listening today, it's it's uh, amazing what kind of you reflect back on. I remember one of my first uh, cases as a paramedic in my younger days, um, going to the exact same situation. Uh, you know, we'd gotten a call for a person that had uh, uh, a young teenager had op- uh, overdosed on an opioid. And uh, and just remembering the mother's kind of going down there, she found them in the basement, and, and at the time she was a nurse. And just seeing the face on her of being part of the healthcare system, but then having to go through the other end of it as well, and and just remembering and reflecting back on you know hearing her cries and please help him and everything, and in that case it did work out well. You know she fe- recognized it early enough, and we were in- intervene early enough that uh, it was a great outcome for him. Um, but definitely, it's it's always a tough thing. You remember those calls. I mean, you're a human being. You're not just
1: a a machine
0: that walks Mm -hmm. in there and says, okay, I have to open this, I have to do this, I have to
1: put this in here, too. Sure. You've got to be impacted by some of those circumstances.
0: No, I think so. And and, and like I said before, everybody's kind of uh, different in the way they react with that. And, uh, you know, uh, paramedics right now, the great thing is, is working with uh, people like Mario, uh, you know, we built programs to help us deal with those situations. Um, well there's some great programs for post traumatic stress disorder exactly yeah absolutely so you know we've gone through those training with our paramedics and and helped uh, hopefully help them deal with those uh, but these are the calls that you do remember and, and to hear these personal stories uh, it's one thing as paramedics we never really hear what the outcome is or how people transition from that acute phase into the more prolonged phase And and to hear stories like this are quite remarkable, and and, and hopefully some great success stories by the sounds of it.
1: You track this stuff, obviously, as as the medical officer of health has told us, as Mm -hmm. as other healthcare professionals do too. Uh, Talk to me about some of these statistics here. I mean, this is not an aberration to say, well, this fentanyl thing, this is kind of new. It's not new to you, is it?
0: No. Once again, is is uh, uh, once again partnering with public health and and and, uh, Dr. Hopkins, we start to track these things since January this year. So uh, the uniqueness of uh, having electronic patient care records now is we can get down. To the, the real nuts and bolts of what's happening. So, what we typically look at um, is, you know, have we used naloxone on a call or is the medic suspicious that an opioid was used? So, um, we've been seeing, you know, uh, th- this month we've had about 32 cases uh, for the month of March. It's slightly up since last month where we experienced about 24 um so you know uh it's just a matter of being uh, taking care and being monitoring those situations trying to identify where these things are occurring so hopefully uh, through public health and working with public health and other agencies within the community particularly because those are important agencies uh, to better sort, support everybody that's out there is it is it fentanyl is that the uh, the the drug of use these days well, this is the this is the interesting thing as as a suspected opioid overdose. A lot of times, we don't know what is in it, and I think we've heard enough stories about now where we have these recreational drugs uh, that are traditionally called one thing, but now they're being laced with many other things. Uh, fentanyl definitely tends to be sounds like it's being the trend. Um, you know, we do hear about car fentanyl, which is in addition is 100 times more potent than fentanyl, as I'm sure you've heard, which is very dangerous. Um, but typically we don't know what we're dealing with up front, but it seems like fentanyl seems to be the, the drug now. How
1: do you make that determination on site? I mean, lives
0: are at stake here. Right. And a lot of the things that we do on site, and, and I just want to reemphasize to to you, the public that's out there, it's it's really just recognition. And it's going through, you know, if the person's not responding, if they're not breathing. Um, usually there's something in the environment that's suggested this to us. Um, then we can go on that suspicion. And uh, that's typically how we form our uh, working diagnosis, as we call it, to treat the patient. But typically, it's uh, a few weeks until we actually find out this is what actually was used.
1: But but obviously, the, you, you, you've you got the naloxone kits up. Th- that, that's got to be part of this. But what we found <laughs> out from Dr. Hopkins, of course, uh, the other day, was that doesn't always work. Uh, it depends on exactly what
0: they've ingested. Exactly, and, and that's, the, that's the other key piece of information. Just because they've been given naloxone, doesn't mean they shouldn't be taken to hospital. Um, As we're aware these drugs are a lot more powerful than they ever have been Uh, when you get into fentanyl or carfentanyl, especially. um, The naloxone is only a temporary agent to reverse that and uh, subsequently they do need acute and ongoing care at the hospital for maybe the next 24-48 hours depending on how much of that opioid is in the system and how powerful it is. uh, Dr. Hopkins I think explained it very aptly suggesting this gives you time to call 911. The naloxone is not a cure. No, that's correct. And and, and what we always emphasize with the public as well is if you do come across these type of situations and you don't have an Narcan kit, don't feel like you can help. Really, it's just about that recognition. Start CPR. If there's an AD available, put that on them and use that as well. If you're reserved about providing artificial respiration, that's not a problem. Just do compressions or hands-only CPR and you're doing the best thing you can for them.
1: Russ was talking about uh, concoctions, uh, Lynn, and, and I know that you had experience that with that with your son. Uh, I want to pick up your story for a couple of seconds uh, and talk about what happened because uh, when we stopped uh, uh, during the news break there, he had just finished this one year of rehab. You thought everything was going to be fine. How long did that last before you started seeing evidence again?
2: Uh, at four years. It then ha- triggered because he had Was an there injury. an event? Uh, okay, there was yes. an event then. Yes. He had an injury at work. And from there, it just triggered on with the opioid crisis. And so now, I, at that time, I didn't even know what. Now we're to talking about pain him, management, yeah. and this, these
1: were prescribed drugs initially. Anyway, exactly, exactly. So he's dealing through medical, proper medical procedures to, to get to deal with the pain. And he's he's being prescribed this stuff. Yeah. But uh, well, and tell me the story because it gets slowly, pretty complicated. Yeah, here.
2: and then slowly he went down, down, down to the point where he lost his job, became homeless. And then he, we got the call from him. To, he just said, they can't take it anymore. i got to come home. And um, so Dad and I talked about it and um, agreed. But there was going to be some rules. Uh, but we didn't know the extent of the medication that he was getting from his doctor. And um, so anyway, we had talked with him and said, well, you know, we'd really like you to go see your normal doctor. And he said, no, I got another one. I said, well, who is it? And whatever. And um, so next thing I know, he really started to progress downhill. We brought him home, and we could monitor him a little bit more. And I I would say, like, what are you taking? And it would be all, all again, hidden from us. So we knew from the past what we're dealing with here now. Uh, Again, here we are. But with medication now. So, um, anyway, I did um, get a hold of his phone, and I learned a lot. So now he's on opioids. He's now on street drugs, MDMA. I think what's MDAHA, which is uh, Molly. Um, back to back to cocaine again and hydromorphine pills he had on him, and Oxycontin. And it was like, Oxycontin? Where are you getting this? So it's this new doctor that he had that was referred to him from other kids on the street. And this particular doctor had just given him a cocktail of medication, which I sent to you earlier mm-hmm. the list. And... um you know, had him on the, uh, op- uh, the Oxycontin, then had him on uh, clorazepam, then had him on lorazepam, and then had him on Concerta. And then at the same time, I'm sure that this doctor did not know that he was also on street drugs because the doctor didn't do any assessment. And that's where I hold them responsible.
1: And we should emphasize, and and Russ, this is a good time to do this, that a lot of the medications that uh, that Lynn is talking about here, these are these are legal and mm-hmm. and used properly can be an effective tool in pain management. Mm-hmm. And doctors, that's why they get prescribed. and and there are some people that do use these uh, that don't necessarily become addicted and, and and have other problems like this. But it becomes a matter of dosage, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, so, and I think that you're bringing a very good point of light here is, is I think when we think opioid overdose or people that use drugs, um, there's a stereotypical person of what we think, and, and I think you bring to light very well we point here is um, these type of opioids are just not used on the street. Um, these opioids, a lot of people do get addicted through totally legitimate means. It's They've had a critical injury, in the in, in son's case, um, you know, they've had it been put on for a very short time, and for whatever reason, um, they get addicted to it. Um, but but that never really becomes the the way in or the entrance way in potentially at, at nobody's fault and uh, within the healthcare sector, um, you know uh, sometimes you hear about people shopping around but some physicians just don't know unfortunately what the other physicians are doing, and and that's sometimes how we get into these circumstances.
1: Well, you remember that commercial for the drug stores? Well, I think it was Shoppers anyway a few years ago. Uh, how they they will actually go through your meds with you. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, your doctors just pres- prescribe whatever. That the, the pharmacist will always say, well, what else are they taking? You know, because th- there can be, you know, well, all sorts of things. I mean, you know, that medication could have an adverse effect because of the stuff you're already on. Uh, if the doctor doesn't know that, and certainly the, the, in this case your son either didn't know or didn't care, uh, you don't know what kind of a cocktail mix is going to
2: have, uh, what kind of an effect that's going to have on your body. Absolutely absolutely and that's the scary part and you know shoppers drug Mart is a great yeah i remember that but they're only going to work with what the actual exactly what you're being told yeah them, right you know yeah they can't do a blood afraid. test on you Right, and that's the whole thing. I mean, where was the blood test? Where was the assessment or, or urine sample, hair sample, whatever the doctors have to do to say, okay, fine, I got this patient that's asking for OxyContin. Well, what's the problem? Oh, I had a back injury. Oh, okay, fine. Well, let's just see, you know, and get some x-rays done and so on and so forth. You just don't prescribe them with no assessment, and that's my problem.
1: It's, it's always a good idea for people that are in, involved, I guess, in ongoing medications, too, Russ, to, to keep a record of that around so that if there is something and you get called that you know what you're dealing with?
0: No, absolutely, and that's one of the things that paramedics do ask when we first get there. Um, you know, can you supply your, your health card and your medication list just so we can see those? Because some of the medications we have to give do interact with the medications that you're currently on, and, and a lot of what we're describing is what we call a synergistic effect and basically it takes a drug that's normally say uh, one times potent but then you mix it with this drug also becomes three times potent and this is when we starting in these troubles when we're mixing a variety of different drugs whether prescribed or illicit and then also they start compounding their effects together Exactly what you say and that's somebody that normally may be taking a recreational drug user but that fails to recognize the synergistic effects of all these things that a pharmacist might know uh... this is when we start to get into these acute cases of crisis
1: and, and and then you mix that with street drugs, and well, you're the expert. So, but the drug user oftentimes is not the expert. Right. They just know that hey, I I, I just had a shot of crack, but now I need an oxycodone because my back's killing me, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe three or four Oxycontins because my back's killing me. Well, you don't know what what kind of an impact that's going to have, and that's oftentimes I guess how you end up at the front door, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and and that's what that's what we tend to see as well, and uh, and once again, it's uh, we do have the antidotes that we carry with us. Uh, but a lot of times these are such complex overdoses now. Um, so particularly when we see these things, we're just not dealing with an opioid overdose. We could be now dealing with a benzodiazepine overdose, which is something similar for seizures, uh, sleeping pills. So so that compounds all these effects together, and uh, it makes it very complicated for a healthcare care professional in general to find out w- exactly what is causing the problem.
1: Uh, when Dr. Hopkins was here a couple of days ago, uh, Dr., for those who don't know, is was uh, with public health, of course, here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, they talked about the mayor's uh, uh, initiative here, and I know you were involved in that earlier mm-hmm. this week. T- talk to us about how effective this is, and you what what can be done.
0: No, I, I think that um, you know Mayor Eisenberg as well as uh, uh, Dr. Hopkins have really taken the initiative out of this, and, and they're definitely trying to get ahead of the wave. And I think this is a, a really phenomenal opportunity. And what I found unique about the panel. Um, is not only did we bring in the traditional medical people, so uh, public health units, uh, you know, fire departments, paramedic services, police services, but uh, most importantly, which we discussed, is bringing the community organizations. So we take care of the acute crisis, but how do we link everybody to the appropriate resource to support them once they're out of that initial crisis? and uh, And that is huge, um, so that that 's one thing I, I think that the uniqueness of this group is bringing. I think it 's uh, showing a great leadership, uh, both from the public health perspective as well from the mayor 's perspective to bring this group let 's get ahead of this wave uh, so we can continue to support everybody in our community.
1: The reality here, Lynn, is a lot <coughs> of people listening to this, a lot of people that may have kids and sons, daughters in in the same situation as your son they just don 't know they, they don 't know <laughs> what 's going on they don 't know what, what what these things are they don 't know what. Uh, you know what? What the the impact can be in in taking these or in abusing these?
2: Absolutely, Bill. And one thing with me is like I have got hours and hours and hours behind me of googling stuff. You know, I I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, but you you know if you Google it and you really, uh, you you find it a lot. I, I'm not saying that everything on Google is correct, but if you ask the right question the right people, and then you're googling stuff, it. You know it's um it certainly helps
1: what's the status with your son now? I, uh, he relapsed we we've we've, we've uh, yeah uh, and uh, it got really messy once again. Yeah. Uh, did he seek help this time? Yes. This is one of the other things that we learned, of course, earlier this week in one of our earlier sessions, is that if you've been clean for a while, your propensity for overdoses actually increases. That's, that's a kind of a,
2: a cruel truth in this whole thing. That's true. And that's what scares me about the new legislation for marijuana, because they really have to take a look at this and make sure... You know that they really monitor the THC level, and because you just don't know how anyone's brain is in connect, mm-hmm. like connected, so that they are addictive. Subject to that, but um, yeah, but so you do. You,
1: you, you do the year, you become clean, and then come back and say, "Yeah, well, I'm just doing pot, mom." Yeah. But it's but you already have established the fact that you have an addictive personality.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep.
1: So you that. that I guess this is maybe one of the great challenges here, Russ, is you think, I'm just going to do pot. I'm never going to get back into that stuff again. I'm not going to do the fentanyl again. Mm-hmm. But, but the body is craving that, and the body is saying, hey, if we're going to do this, why don't we do this? Mm-hmm. And you're fighting against
0: yourself. A- and every individual is different. Uh, there are tolerance for that. So you might have the one story where, you know, you hear this, and, and that's all they end up using is pot for the next 25 years. Uh, the next person, they've spiraled out of control within weeks again. Uh, it, we just don't know. But I guess what is at the end of the day is, are we willing to take that risk? And, and I think something is, you know, that's going to be something for the government to, uh, to really look into. And I think, you know, hearing stories like this, um, uh, they have a big responsibility at this point when they introduce this type of legislation. But I, I think stories like this have to be balanced into it for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. You've lived through hell. You've gone through this. You're still doing it, obviously, because this is, there's no end point for this. Uh, the, it's not, okay, everything's going to be fine. I mean, your son's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. You're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life as well. With what you have gone through, do you feel that, to, to to Rust's point, that we offer enough in the way of support services to, to help people to deal with this and families to deal with this?
2: Absolutely not. We don't. We don't. Um, right now, our son is in the, the program at St. Joe's concurrent department, uh, uh, concurrent program. Um, but then again, um, he has to wait three months to see a psychiatrist for that program. Um, there is just so much that we need to do. And and the thing is, when you're living with a son that or a child that needs help like this, and I mean a major crisis, it's almost like I always said, I like to have <coughs> the crane come down, pick him up, and drop him off. Mm-hmm. For us as parents, if you've never been through this, there's no book. There's no mm-hmm. book even on parenting, let alone you know, uh, addiction one way or the other. Um, so you do depend on a lot of the doctors. If that has failed you, then, you know, as a caretaker, like anything else, you got to really learn it yourself and help them. Um, I don't, so many times our son has said to me, Mom, I don't know what I would have done if it wasn't for you. And you're, you know, once he got clean, I, I'm okay. You know I'm saying to him. But um, he thanks me so much every day for his life.
1: Well, you probably saved his life. I did, and uh, yes. it's, so many it's, times. It, but a lot you, more to the story. <laughs> and I know, and and you also realize, as he does, I hope that this is ongoing, and uh, that every day is is a new challenge, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. You know, I wake up every morning, and you don't know if you are going to be faced with anger crises. Uh, you know him not getting up him yelling and screaming uh he can't find this or like and i mean the, i sent you a list of all the things that we do yep. that we live with on a daily basis mm-hmm. right and my husband calls me at lunch is like how's it going and it's just you know lose a job doesn't go in um, misses appointments it's horrendous bill horrendous
1: we uh, we hope we've shed some light on this, and, and I know that there are people out there listening right now that are probably nodding and saying, I'm, I'm living this right now, too. Uh, reach out to somebody. Uh, you have to, and you have to get help and and uh, do what you can uh, with each and every day. Lynn, thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you, Bill. And
1: thank you for telling your story, and uh, we hope that it's uh, had an impact and maybe served as a motivation for others to, to take action on their situations, too. Russ, uh, thank you for the great work that you and all of the guys and, uh, and, and ladies in the paramedics corps do, of course, on a daily basis and in saving lives, too. And thank you for coming in today. Perfect. Thanks for having us. This uh, wraps up our uh, five-part series on the opioid crisis. We uh, encourage you, by the way, to go to our website, 900CHML.com. We've got the uh, all five episodes. Well, this one will be up posted a little bit later on. We'll have all five of them up there in case you missed something.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.